Today, I'm going to try and do an overview of Genesis. Now, we're not going to do that every time. I'm not going to give you an overview of the book. That, that just doesn't work. But with, with Genesis, it's just impossible to pick one aspect to give you a whole feel for how God's Word begins. So this morning, we're going to just take an overview of Genesis it was Christmas Eve, 1968, and the silence above the forbidding landscape of the moon was broken by the voices of astronauts Frank Borman, James Lovell, and Bill Anders. This was their fourth broadcast from the Apollo 8 mission. Uh, and if you remember, uh, or if you've studied your history, uh, the Apollo 8 mission was the first to actually leave Earth's orbit and go to the moon. It was the first manned uh, space capsule to orbit the moon. So this was really a major step in the process of us getting there. This broadcast on Christmas Eve of 1968 was at that time the most watched television program ever. In that telecast, these astronauts all read a portion of Genesis chapter 1, and the first 10 verses, which begins, as you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Commander Frank Borman closed the lunar telecast with these words, good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you upon the good earth. Genesis. The very word means beginning, and usually we think of Genesis as the story that reveals the beginning of this good earth, but it is so much more. It is that, but it is so much more. As the writer Moses doesn't so much announce the presence of God in verse 1 as he assumes God's presence. Of course God is present. Of course God is creator. Now, I want you to know what Exodus chapter 33, verse 11 says about Moses. It says this, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Now, that's really important to know when you consider the fact that Moses is the writer of the book of Genesis. And I believe in the 80 days that Moses spent on the mountain summit, God gave him the story. If I dictate a letter that is to be mailed to you, and somebody else actually types it on the computer, does it diminish the fact that it's from me? Not at all. It's still my words. <clears throat> it's still my message to you, even though somebody may have put the words into the word processor program and then printed it on a printer, does it diminish the fact that the letter is still from me? I don't know how God and Moses interacted on the mountain, but I am convinced and confident that God's story was conveyed to Moses who recorded it for all of us. Now, in approaching the book of Genesis, you've got to remember who were the first readers of this incredible book. Jacob's family numbered 70 when they moved to Egypt to settle in the land of Goshen during the Great Famine. 400 years later, when Jacob's family left Egypt, they numbered somewhere about one and a half million people. They have been rescued from their bitter bondage by a somewhat reticent deliverer by the name of Moses. 
Now, these former Hebrew slaves had been immersed into Egyptian folklore and religious stories for four centuries, and God wanted them to know the truth. I mean, stop and think about that. They'd been there for 160-plus years, more than what we've been a nation here. The Egyptians had a story about creation. They had a global flood that destroyed everything. They had a story about the repopulation of the world. They had all kinds of stories about what life was like in the beginning. As a matter of fact, their flood story said that two frogs survived on a boat, and from those two frogs, all the rest of the world was repopulated. Now, I've met a couple of toads in my life that I wouldn't want to spend too much time with that give credence to that story, but really, it's a pretty ludicrous story. Two frogs, everything else comes back, and God gets his people out of bondage into the wilderness, being led by Moses, and God basically says this, I want you to know the real story. I want you to know the truth. I want you to know how it really happened. And so, Moses got the straight story from God and wrote it down for all of us. Imagine being a co-author with God in the book of Genesis. Folks, this is an ear witness account. This is not something that Moses dreamed up. This is God's report to his people and to us. Now, what happens in Genesis is profound. It's not only the history of these former slaves that were in Egypt, it's our history as well. The first five words of the English Bible launch us on a spiritual exploration of our own roots. In the beginning, God created. Only five English words into the biblical narrative, and I am faced with a question that demands an answer. My answer will impact how I read all the rest of the Bible. It will impact the way in which I think, reason, and behave in my daily life. It will influence my attitude toward the past, prepare myself for the future, and it will impact the events and the people of the present and how I look for what needs to take place tomorrow. It is one of the most fundamental and profound questions I'll ever seek to answer, and it will be the same for you. The question is simply this. Do I really believe the first five words? In the beginning, God created. Either I do or I don't. Folks, there's no middle ground in this. You can have it both ways. And I understand you may be struggling with your answer to that question. Struggle if you most must, but don't let your answer go unresolved. Far too much is at stake to leave the question of God as your creator hanging in limbo. Now, Genesis begins with this huge, epic, explosive picture of all of creation. And by the end of the book, it has narrowed down to the story of one family. From beginning to end, it's filled with these incredible vignettes of beginnings. I wish I had time just to explore every, every beginning that is launched in the book of Genesis. We don't today. So let me give you the, the big beginnings. <clears throat> the beginning of life. The story of creation is more than just an explanation of what God did and when he did it. It is first an expression of his power, his greatness, his creativity. Creation is praise to the creator himself. 
Psalm chapter 19 reads like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Colossians chapter 1. For in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together creation explosively points us to God it praises God it reveals God if you take an honest look at the beauty of creation around you after <clears throat> figuring out how to clone humans, two scientists said, God, we don't need you anymore. We can now create life on our own. And God said, okay, I get that. Let's have a man-making contest. The scientists said, all right, let's do that. We'll do it just like you did in the beginning. And they reached out and grabbed a handful of dirt. And God said, hold it, you two. You go get your own dirt. <laughs> Everything in all of creation points to God. Even the dirt under your feet proclaims his glory. Here's the next vignette. The beginning of family. Chapter 1 in Genesis is this grand story of creation, but chapter 2 is a much smaller, more detailed, intimate segment contained within the big picture. Have you ever logged on to Google Earth? Uh, if you've ever done that, if you haven't, it's kind of a fun thing to do. Go to Google Earth, and, and, you, and the website opens, and you see the globe, and then you just keep clicking and narrowing down, and eventually you can see your own house from a satellite view. And I don't mean just real tiny. I mean, it, it blossoms into view so that you can see details. That's exactly what happens in chapter 2. Out of this big, expansive, epic picture, God narrows the field to this very important picture. It's the creation of the family. One of the more important aspects of God's creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, sometimes we look at this and we think, did God forget to make somebody for, for Adam? And, and the answer, of course, is no. This is God's way of setting the stage for the importance of relationships. All the rest of the animal kingdom had uh, the male and female at this point in time in the story. And, and man doesn't, God says, this is, this is not a good picture. Aloneness is not what we're striving for. Uh, and, and so he goes on to say in verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man and the man said, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then God adds this commentary note for this reason. A man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. God reminds his people, who had been steeped in Egyptian culture for 400 years, that this was his expectation in building a family. A man and a woman leave the homes in which they grow up, make a commitment to each other, start their own family, and the whole process continues to repeat. In their physical union as well as their emotional, mental, and spiritual connectedness, they become as one, one unit together. This verse 
For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they will become one. That verse was so integral to God's plan that Jesus quotes it again in Matthew 19 and then adds this further commentary. Jesus said, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You hear that at the end of weddings. That's God's plan. And then Paul, when he writes to the early church in the book of Ephesus about this beauty of marriage, he quotes this verse from Genesis a third time. You see, Genesis introduces us to the beginning of family. Our marriage is perfect today. <laughs> and no, you, you can't take imperfect people and make perfect relationships and perfect marriages and perfect families. It just doesn't happen that way. What Adam and Eve's fam uh, marriage was only perfect for a short time, and, and once sin entered, it, it became imperfect, and there has never been a perfect marriage since. We joke a lot about marriage because it sometimes takes away the pain. One woman said, I just got back from a pleasure trip. I drove my husband to the airport. <laughs> One husband countered, I take my wife everywhere, but she keeps finding her way back home. And let's face it, marriage is complicated, family is complicated, at best it is sometimes confusing. It all started when 76-year-old Bill Baker of London married Edna Harvey. Now that's not the problem, Bill who married Edna. But Edna happened to be Bill's granddaughter's mother-in-law. According to Bill Baker's granddaughter Lynn, it wasn't the fact that her grandfather's marriage to her mother-in-law was anything bad. It was just then hard to understand how every relationship changed as a result of that. She said, my mother-in-law is now my step-grandmother, and my grandfather is now my step-father-in-law. That makes my mom my sister-in-law, and my brother is now my nephew. But even worse, I'm married to my uncle, and my own children are my cousins. Marriage and family gets complicated and it gets messy and it gets confusing and it can be painful, but it is worth saving and preserving and working through the issues. It's challenging at best for all of our best intentions, for all of our hopes and dreams. Sometimes marriages fail. That doesn't mean you are a failure. And when it does happen that your marriage fails, remember that the Father who created it understands what's going on and loves you with all of his heart, knows better than anyone our weaknesses and our frailties. And can I remind you, too, that the church really does want to help. We want to listen. We want to pray with you. We want to provide support and encouragement to you along the way. We want to come alongside of you during your tough ordeal and help you through it if, if you'll let us. Sometimes people don't want that help. Or they figure that it's impossible. Who could want to help during it? We want to help during that time. And, and who knows how that may turn out and how God may work through those things. I know we, we have single parents. Uh, we have broken relationships. We live in a broken world. Those things are going to happen. So let us as a family help bind those wounds and encourage and help you. If you grew up in a broken home, it doesn't mean that your marriage is destined to fail too. Learn from the past. Make the changes that are needed and follow God's wisdom for creating a family that honors him and encourages you. 
Why should we know the Bible, you say? Because I'm telling you, all of the encouragement that is needed to establish a good family and home is found in God's Word. Over and over and over again, we see positive examples, we see negative examples, and we see the truthfulness of how to create family. We here at Sherwood Oaks are trying to make a concerted effort as a church to do everything we can to prepare younger people as they look ahead to marriage, to help newly married couples get off on the, the, the right foot, and we're trying to help established families and marriages stay together and grow even stronger. Um, if, if, if you are looking for some help along that way, I would suggest, first of all, you go to our website. Uh, I think we'll have a couple pictures here to just give you an idea. Log on to the website. Go over to the uh, uh, left-hand side of the page where you see Connect. Click on Connect. That will bring up this page. And then you go over under the adult ministry and you scroll down to Married Life and click on that. And it will take you to our Married Life page. And there you will begin to see some of the opportunities that are here that we want to help strengthen strong marriages. Because... In the beginning, God created the family. Here's the third vignette picture. It's the beginning of treason. <clears throat> the beginning of treason. I know it's misspelled. It is done so purposely <laughs> to help you remember something. Three trees come into play in this most devastating moment of history. The relational component of God's creation gives way to the freedom to choose. God placed the tree of life in the garden which Adam and Eve were invited to eat every day. But of necessity, God also places an alternate forbidden tree in the garden as well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not to eat of that tree. You see, freedom to choose when there is no choice is not freedom at all, it's mere puppetry. Love where there is no choice is not love but coercion. So God took the risk that his love might be rejected by giving us the choice to love others. And so when God said, you got two trees, you can eat of this one, don't eat of this one, he knew the choice would be tough. And so the ancient adversary himself, cloaking himself in the form of the serpent, seized the moment, laid the temptation, and Adam and Eve in a weak moment found themselves snacking on forbidden fruit. Everything changed that day. Sin entered the world, this rebellion against God. And when it entered the human equation, our nature then became at war with God's nature. God cursed the serpent to eat dust all the days of his life and existence, which might hold an ominous symbolic twist since we were created out of the dust of the earth because the ancient serpent has been feasting on our vulnerability ever since. There would be spiritual war between the physical descendants of the woman and the spiritual descendants of the serpent, and then that battle would eventually give way to a third tree, this tree shaped in the form of a cross on which God himself would pay the price so that we might have access again to the tree of life which is in heaven now. The act of treason, the beginning of that treasonous act of rebellion against God changed everything. Next vignette, the beginning of judgment, grace, and national distinction. This is the story of a world gone mad. The great flood became a came because of what we read in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. That passage reminds us that God will hold accountable our sin 
But in the very same passage, we are introduced to the concept of grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I preached about Noah about three weeks ago, so I'm not going to say any more about it here, other than to remind you that because God loves us, he has provided a rescue plan. And from this point on in the Bible, okay, all the way up through the 8th, ninth chapter of the book of Genesis, we're, we're all these beginnings. But from this point on, the theme of the Bible is grace. Oh, sure, there is judgment. Oh, sure, there are consequences and penalties. But the theme from here on is grace. Chapters 10 and 11 list the growing clans that would soon disperse into many nations and languages. And then we come to the beginning of a promise. And this is my favorite beginning for all of the grandeur of all the rest of them. This is my favorite beginning in Genesis. God's promise is first introduced to Adam and Eve. It's just a hint there in the garden after they'd sinned. This is that statement that God says that the descendant of the woman would someday crush the serpent. It's just a hint, but it is so packed with hope. This kind of misery will not always endure. I'm going to send the rescuer. And from chapter 12 on, the book of Genesis narrows into the story of one family. Because you see, after the nations are dispersed, God chooses Abraham to start the Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people are the ones that are going to give way to the rescuer, the Savior. Abraham decides to follow God, and God makes him this promise in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's house, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who, uh, and, and, I, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That promise passed from Abraham to his son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob, and then in Jacob's son Joseph, my favorite story in the book of Genesis, we get a glimpse into the character of our promised Savior. Joseph is often called the Christ of the Old Testament, hated by his brothers because he was his father's favorite, sold for a handful of silver, punished for something he didn't do, but eventually rises to be prime minister over Egypt there, his divinely inspired plan to save Egypt during the Great Famine also saves his own family. When they come to buy food, Joseph reveals himself to him, forgives his brothers, establishes them in the land of Goshen, and Jacob, who thought his son was dead, realizes he is alive again. It is this incredible glimpse into what God was planning to do down the road. And from the end of Genesis, God keeps telling us over and over and over through the Bible the story of forgiveness and rescue that is coming in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that has come. So here's my question for you. What new beginning do you need in your life? The book of Genesis is filled with stories of brokenness, sin, defeat, rebellion, and failure. And I'm guessing that whatever you've been struggling with, you can find an example of it in the book of Genesis. I'd be surprised if you couldn't. And yet the overarching theme is not the beginning of problems, but the beginning of promise. So do you need a new beginning when it comes to your life, your choices, your habits, your addictions? Is your marriage struggling? 
Are your family broken by sibling rivalry? Do you need a new beginning there? Do you struggle with anger like Cain, immorality like Judah, deceitfulness like Jacob? Then let me introduce you to Jesus, the fulfillment of the promise, the Lord of new beginnings. Make him your savior today, and he'll make the best new beginning of your life that you ever dreamed possible.